Christianity is very diverse, but all denominations share a common source that, by its nature, has created problems for which there is no biblical antidote. Tim Glover provides an alternative. Join him each Wednesday at 10 a.m. to share his studies with you. And good morning to you. Welcome to our study this morning. We have been looking at some of the passages that are often misinterpreted and misused. This could go on and on, but this is just to illustrate, I think, the point that sometimes uh, the English translations may tend to uh, lend to a certain conclusion that's not in the original text. And just to give a sense of the, the, the dedication, the determination that we ought to have to understand the, the scriptures, no, it's not too difficult to understand. That's not my point, but that uh, there's a great deal of effort over the years. Uh, not necessarily effort, but uh, uh, translations and teaching that has been given, that has been done to confuse our understanding of the truth. So I'm hoping to kind of con- to set that straight in some examples that we're going to look at this morning. And uh, again, just to illustrate the need to study. And uh, we're, we left off last time talking about Second Timothy 2.15 where it is most often interpreted to mean that one should study the Word of God in order to divide it properly. And though that's true, we need to study. The central idea behind this is that we should give great diligence, a lot of effort, and make an endeavor, a concentrated effort, uh, so that we are approved unto God. That's what we want to be. We want to be approved unto God. That's the effort. That's the diligence that we ought to give attention to. And of course, in the process of doing that, we're going to handle or write the word, of, the word of God because we want to know his will. It's not just a matter of trying to prove a point or, you know, confirm what some church believes and its practice as being correct. But it's all about my relationship to God and your relationship to God and uh, where that stands. We should be making every effort to be approved. The word itself means to endeavor or give diligence for that reason, I like the American Standard Version most of all in this passage because it, it says give diligence. The essential idea, again, is that one should make every effort, take every pain, and exert oneself to handle truth rightly. Of course, one should do his utmost bet, uh, best to uh, straight cut or handle or write that word of God. Literally, one should be eager to show himself accepted by God as an unashamed worker in cutting straight the word of truth. Some other passages use the same word that's translated study. Understand, please, that this is a translation. King James translates it back in the 1600s that it meant just that. It doesn't mean that today, as words do have historically do change their meaning and develop other ideas over the years. And this is one of them. In Galatians 2.10, for example, Paul was zealous to remember the poor. The word zealous here comes from the exact same word that's translated study in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. So uh, zealous is uh, Peter, James, John gave Paul and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship and agreed that they should go to the Gentiles while they stayed and worked with the Jews. And so they urged Paul and Barnabas to remember the poor. And Paul said, we were eager to do that already. That is, we made every effort. We gave diligence to do that. 
Paul instructed Christians to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Ephesians 4, verse 3, same word. Another way to translate the passage would be being eager to keep the unity of the Spirit or give every diligence to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Hebrew brethren were admonished to labor to enter into that rest. And Peter exhorted brethren in his day to give diligence to make their calling and election sure. 2 Peter 1 verse 10. Diligence is the translation of the same word from which study is found and are rendered here in 2 Timothy 2. So there's different translations, different words used to translate the same Greek word. Brethren should endeavor, they should exert, they should make sure of their calling and their election. And from all that has been shown in all these passages, it should now be clear that study in 2 Timothy 2 means to give diligence, to be eager, to endeavor, or to take pains to teach Scripture as it should be taught. So both the language and the content in which it appears really, really forces us to this interpretation. Now, I know you may not like that if you use that passage a lot to different meaning or give it a different meaning. I've, I've found that very difficult when I've used a certain passage all my life to prove something or to illustrate a point and then come to find out it doesn't illustrate it at all. But that's part of learning, and that's part of growing. Another passage that I want to look at with you is in Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew 18, verse 15, beginning, uh, it has been taught over the years, this is the uh, a pattern for the churches, actually, I've heard it all my life, in how to carry out or carry through with church discipline. Well, in the first place, you'll read the passage very carefully. Uh, this isn't really talking about church discipline. Now, some would argue, well, it gets to that point if the if the one caught in sin or who has sinned doesn't repent. And I understand that. But originally, it's it's intended to be a very private thing, actually. But the point is, is that churches should apply this in the sense that we should go to a brother who has sinned and do it privately. But there's another context that chisels away at that application. You know, sometimes when one sins and he's approached by a brother who learned about his sin from another, the sinner upset by the chastising, by chastising that the informing brother for not acting within the scope of Christ's direction in Matthew 18. In other words, you know, he, he needs to be taking it pri privately and the sinner thus seeks to shift concern about his error. It, it can get confusing, but the, I can remember times in my young life when this has been so abused and so mis misapplied. The instruction in Matthew 18, let's just take it, if you look at verse 15 beginning, this is a very private matter where one has sinned against another brother. This is a sin that takes place against another brother. This is not something that we would expect to be applied across the board. And, and there's reasons for that. Uh, there are circumstances that differ. For example, in 1 Corinthians, well, we find an example there where, why, when you come together, deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his soul might be saved in the day of the Lord. This man had his was living with his father's wife. It was public knowledge. Even the community recognized it as uh, being distasteful. And so it was getting it was getting to be a serious issue. Not only that, but it was also had the potential of affecting the rest as pertained to dealing with sin. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. 
Paul would say in that context. So that's an altogether different application, but it's a different set of circumstances too. And, and so we should be aware of that. When a brother has sinned against another specific uh, member of the body, in the event that a brother has been sinned against personally, he should approach the brother having done the wrong to win him back to obedience to Christ. Now, this is something that isn't done very often. Here's the reason. Number one, we're afraid that it might we might uh, stir up trouble and strife and and maybe break a friend forever or cause someone to quit coming to church. And there's all kinds of reasons that we're real tentative about doing it. But the majority of us would just say eventually after we get over it and get over the hurt, though we may be a little bit suspicious from here on out, we'll say something like, oh, well, we're all sinners. We all sin. And I'll just forgive him. I'll just let it go. I have big shoulders. I need to be strong and, and take it on the chin. And I'm I know he, he meant well. He's, I'm, I'm just going to ignore it and forget it and go on. Well, you realize something, that this, this isn't for your benefit. That's a very, if you think about it, and you'll have to think about it because most people won't even consider this possibility, but that's a very selfish conclusion. It isn't about you. It isn't about how you feel. I've heard this so much that it, it's really, uh, oh, it just nerves me to hear people talking about we need to forgive somebody so we can go on. Well, the forgiveness isn't for our benefit. Forgiveness is always for the benefit of the person who needs to be forgiven, who has sinned. In this case, if a brother has sinned against you and it's a private issue, then guess what? Only you would know about it. So here's sin that's left, you know, not dealt with, just ignored. You go on and forgive him because you've got to move on. Meanwhile, there's still sin that has been not been addressed. You see, it's not about you again. It's about the brother who needs reconciliation. David said, my sin against is against you, against God, only against God. Against you and you only have I sinned, he would say. So now that just illustrates, I think, the nature of sin. Sin is first and foremost a affront violation of heaven's will. It's, it's where we have offended a holy and righteous God and in a covenant relationship with him and we've gone aside and turned aside to something else and violated that relationship that we've sinned against God. So here's a brother who sinned against God. He didn't just sin against you. And you say, well, I'll just go on. I've got big shoulders. I'll, I'll just forgive him. <laughs> number one, he didn't know anything about you forgiving him because you've never approached him. And number two, again, it's not about you. So this passage really doesn't give instructions in a situation in which one is, is not sinned against. And so often this passage is completely misinterpreted and applied to situations to which it has no relevance after the brother sinned against and has failed to gain the brother, then needs to take two or three more with him that the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word might be established, the text says, uh, to see, to, to accomplish the same purpose, to bring the brother to repentance. And failing in these two attempts, the brothers to tell the matter, the text says, to the church. I believe what we're talking about is to the, the, the called out. In other words, all of God's Christian people need to know about it so that they might do the same thing. But all efforts must be made 
to restore this brother to fellowship with God. But what about the case when the sin is not against a brother? Like 1 Corinthians 5. What about any case that's not against another a brother or sister? This passage speaks to a very specific situation. It doesn't apply to someone who's who's got a, an addiction and uh, he's struggling with this sin or it doesn't apply to a situation when one is overtaken in a trespass or because of the weakness of the flesh. It deals specifically when one brother sins against another brother. That's its application. And God intent, God's intent, therefore, in this passage is not designed to be applied to, quote, church discipline. In fact, the only times it would lead to other people, again, is when the brother is persistent, rebellious, and repentant. So that's the application of that passage. It's a quick rendition of it anyway. I thank you for thinking about that. I trust that you would continue to think about that as it pertains to your responsibility when sin has happened. Again, keep in mind that sin is a violation of heaven's will. And so when someone has sinned and you and you only are aware of it, obviously if they've sinned against you, that would be as far as it would go then you need to take matters, that, that situation, up with that brother, not because you've got your feelings hurt or not because, you know, you, you've got to even the score, so to speak, but it's all because of the nature of sin and how we should handle it. Another passage of Scripture that is often misapplied is 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. It says, things which I saw not, ear heard not, and which entered not into the heart of man. You're familiar with that passage, I'm sure. And we hear it frequently at funerals. One will hear that passage read, and they'll apply it to the beauties and joys of heaven. Well, I'm sorry to for you preachers who are honestly seeking to know God's will. I, this might really upset you not to be able to use that passage in that case, because that's really not the application at all. When that's used that way, the preacher often states it in this connection that Paul has informed us that the joys of heaven have not been seen, heard, or entered into the minds of men. And, and the use of that passage, that's a misinterpretation of what Paul is saying here. It's easily avoided by just carefully giving attention to the text itself. Verse 10 shows the things that eyes have not seen, ears have not heard, and has not entered into the hearts of men. And that's to be the revelation of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10, the very next verse. But unto us God revealed them through the Spirit. To interpret the passage to mean that eyes have not seen, ears have not heard, and minds have not thought about the beauties and joys of heaven is to place one in a ridiculous situation with reference to the text. For the very next verse says, God revealed them. Well, it can't be that it's both concealed and revealed simultaneously, can it? Think about it. This passage asserts that the Word of God is not the product of human observation. It doesn't have anything to do with uh, human intelligence. But it is the, a revelation through the Holy Spirit who knows the mind of God. Read sometime 1 Corinthians 2, beginning in about verse 9 and following. It's true. We don't know about all about heaven. But that passage is not the one that so instructs us. Another scripture 
that uh, has been abused down through the years is 1 Corinthians 1.17. Now, this passage is interpreted to mean that baptism is not important. It's not essential. Because, after all, Paul was not sent to baptize. He was sent to preach the gospel. That interpretation ignores the sense of the statement in the context. I'm really not interested in arguing this point one way or the other. I just want to illustrate the misinterpretation of this text. Paul preached, and others who were not so endowed to preach attended to the immersing or the baptizing. Now, that's his point, and let me illustrate it. The context shows this, and that, you know, the view that baptism is not essential to being a Christian is not taught here, nor is it really supported anywhere else. But when you start in verse 10, Paul chastised them for being divided into this schismatic groups of some said they were Paul, some of Apollos, some of Cephas, and some of Christ. And dealing directly with that error, Paul raised some rhetorical questions, the answers to which aren't necessary to give, but I mean, you see it clearly when he asked, is Christ divided? It, was Paul crucified for you? Now, if he was, you might call yourself Paulites, but was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Verse 13, well, surely Christ isn't divided and Paul wasn't crucified for them, and nor were they baptized into Paul's name. Now, had they been baptized in the name of the crucified Paul, <laughs> then it would have been appropriate for them to have said they were Paul. And with equal force, the same questions could be applied to any of the other fellows, like Apollos or Cephas. The force of his argument is telling. It's saying Christians are those who have been baptized in the name of the crucified Christ. Rather than teach that immersion isn't important, this passage asserts that it is necessary to for one's becoming a Christian. If the meaning is that Paul was not to baptize, then he disobeyed the Lord because he said, I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest by any means some would say I were baptized into my own name. And then as if he forgot, oh, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. You see, it was in that context that he said that Christ sent him not to baptize, but to preach. The sense of the passage can be clearly seen when one considers these statements, he says, I thank God I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius and Stephanus, perhaps or some other. I don't. In other words, it wasn't about keeping a record of who baptized who. That wasn't important. But that doesn't mean it wasn't important to be baptized. The sense of this passage can be clearly seen when one considers another statement about Jesus in John 4. In John 4, it is said that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. I'm going to just pause there and put a period there for the sake of emphasis. Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. That's right. However, if you'll follow the next few, few words, he says, although he baptized not but his disciples. Well, I thought Jesus, you said Jesus baptized. No. He did, but he did through the disciples. He didn't personally do it. Paul is suggesting the same thing. Paul did the preaching. Others attended to the baptizing with the exceptions to which Paul gave called attention, which were a few people that he personally baptized. Verse 17, you see, is incomplete without or apart from the context in which it appears. You can't just take a statement that you like pull it out of the context, 
and make it say what you want it to say because it proves your point. That's what's called proof texting. And I know to some degree we've all been guilty of it. I'm not trying to throw stones here. It's clear that Paul worked under the same commission as did the other apostles and that he was making disciples and he was baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That was the great commission that was given to the apostles in Matthew 28 or as recorded in Mark 16. His principal task, as you read that, uh, was the preaching the gospel to others. Others may attended to the baptizing part. And so one misuses 1 Corinthians 1.17 when you interpret it to mean that baptism is not important. Well, there's another passage. I think we have time to look at it. In 1 John 3 and verse 9, that passage is sometimes interpreted to mean that once we become a child of God, while well, it's impossible for one to commit a sin. The context and the language of the passage state differently. Actually, the language of the passage contradicts the entire interpretation. Uh, Charles B. Williams gives the, the translation, no one who is born of God makes a practice of sinning. And of course, when you read John's epistle, uh, John uses the present active indicative quite often, which has to, the force of an ongoing, continual practice. That is prevalent throughout his writing. The God-given life principle certainly continues to live in him. He doesn't want to serve sin. It's a lot like Romans 6, where Paul says that, you know, we've become raised to walk in newness of life and uh, that sin does not have dominion over us. But that doesn't mean that we can't sin. In fact, he says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness, but yield them unto God. So we're not saying that man can't sin, that no one can sin, but he will not live in a continuous practice of sin. So the passage, no one who is born of God will continue practicing sin or a you know, keep on sinning because the life principle continues to live in him. He cannot practice sinning. He's born of God. That's the point of it. In a footnote dealing with cannot practice, William says that the, the present of habitual action is the present tense. It's, that's the point that I made a minute ago. Christians can't practice sinning, but they may sin. They may fall and falter. And so, you know, not interesting enough, Williams was a, a Baptist, I believe. There's several Baptist doctrines notwithstanding that they believe this, but he affirms that one may sin. Uh, it's not stating that one cannot commit a sin, but it's stating that one who is governed by the Word of God, born of God, cannot be a habitual sinner. He can't practice sinning. Please study that in that context and in the light of the whole book, the larger context, as an example, the book of uh, 1 John, uh, would also support that view. John says that if we say we have no sin, 1 John 1, 8, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Well, that alone would say something about the Christian and sin. Further, he would say, if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. 
John wrote that they might not sin. He says, I write that you, he stated that if any man sin, we, we in 1 John 2, 1, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He said, if any man sin, we, that, that implies, does it not, that that will may take place and that we have an advocate with the Father in the, in the person of Jesus Christ. The truth is that men have, do, and will sin. And these statements preclude that. that it, and the interpretation of 1 John 3, 9 to mean that one cannot commit a sin would certainly fly in the face of these clear passages. When one is habitually and characteristically continuing in sin, then that questions his new life. It questions his uh, birth. The very fact that one his one who practices unrighteousness is not of God. Neither he says that loves not his brother. And so those in the proper relation to God will not habitually practice sin because that's inconsistent with his relationship. It's inconsistent with his sonship. That's the point of the passage. Not the notion that one can't commit a sin once having become a child of God. Another passage of scripture we might get to quickly is 1 Peter chapter 4, 8. The meaning sometimes given to this passage is that the righteous are barely saved. And it uses the King James, if the righteous are scarcely saved. This, this Greek word that's translated scarcely is translated from a word that means with difficulty, hardly. If it's hard or if it is with difficulty, that might, you know, the upright man, he's saved. But what shall the end of the wicked be? Scarcely does not have the meaning of being saved in the sense of almost missing it, but rather being saved with difficulty. So if, if they're saved with difficulty, the righteous, then what does that say about the unrighteous, the wicked? You know, trials, uh, tests through which we must go, combined with our own weaknesses, make salvation difficult. But if we're saved, it is no less certain and sure than is our Lord's own triumph and victory over sin. The idea is then not that we are barely saved. If we are saved, we're saved. The sense of the passage in, in context is that if one who seeks to devote himself to righteousness finds it difficult to be saved, in other words, he goes through trials and temptations and, and, and all that, then surely there's no hope for the ungodly and sinners. They make no effort whatsoever. So one of the most rewarding expenditures of our time and effort is to meditate upon the language and the context of these specific passages. Give diligence to, to make yourself approved unto God, handling aright the word of truth. Do not rest God's word, W-R-E-S-T, to your own destruction, 2 Peter 3.16. Thank you so much for your attention to these things.